Well, in just a moment, we're going to get to hear the word from our guest preacher this morning, but I know from conversations, a number of you have been wondering how a Unitarian kid with California roots, who up until yesterday had never seen a live SEC football game, right? How did that guy get in Northwest Arkansas? Well, humanly speaking, the answer is going to be before you in just a moment in the form of our guest preacher. He hails initially from Missouri, but I met him in Washington, D.C., where after finishing his doctoral work at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, he came to the church where I was serving, did a pastoral internship program there, and we became good friends. But it was clear, given his giftings with the word, his love for the body, that God would likely use him um, in a local church somewhere. And not long ago, he headed out to to be the pastor at the campus of the Fort Worth, the Fort Worth campus of the Village Church there in Dallas. And uh, he, in a conversation with Kevin McCollum, was the one, again, humanly speaking, who leaned on, on Kevin and some others say, hey, you ought to consider this friend of mine from D.C. So it is just with great joy as I reflect on God's good providence that we get to hear from our brother, Anthony Morecambe, and gives God's word to us. Come on up, Anthony. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I, um, I sat underneath Brad as a pastor, and my family and I are the better for it. And so you guys have an incredible, incredible pastor, a man who loves to care for people. And so you're in good hands, brother. I honor you this morning by preaching the text. Thank you for having me. I invite you all to stand with me in honor of hearing from God's word to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, we hear these words from the Apostle Paul. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to a saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. As you're going to your seat, let's pray to the Lord. Lord, I was just recounting of how I oftentimes miss your grace each Sunday morning. How the picture of you gathering your people to this place, to this church, and all your brides all over the world is a picture of what you will do in the eschaton, in the end time, where you will gather us together to worship before you. Lord, I pray for a people here today that would be marked by eternity then, that would be marked by that moment of gathering together before you, that they would make decisions, that they would live life based upon that eternity, that they would live now in light of eternity around your throne. 
Lord, I'm thankful for your gospel, Lord, the gospel which calls us here to this place, which has gathered these people from all different walks of life together here. Lord, I pray that we would be people who never add to your gospel. Lord, may it be that we don't find righteousness in and of ourselves and what we do. Lord, I also pray that we would never be those who take away from your gospel. That we'd be faithful with your message and that we would have good hands and take care of the gospel which you've entrusted to us. So Christ, I preach to that end. I pray that you would continue to gather your people from the preaching of your word. It's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. If you watch TV for any amount of time, turn it on just for a moment. And dare I say that you're probably going to see what I call a pharmaceutical drug commercial. Now, what I like about pharmaceutical drug commercials is on the one hand, they'll have an outlandish claim. So you'll hear them say something like this. Have you had bad blood pressure all your life? With just two easy pills a day, you can have the blood pressure of a 21-year-old. Have you, have you been overweight? Would you like to lose weight? Then just two easy pills a day, you can lose over 300 pounds in just one week. Do you have acne? Then just one pill a day, you can look like your favorite actor or actress. And you come away initially when you hear the start of the pharmaceutical drug commercial, you come away going, man, that's, that's great. I, I want that cure. That's incredible. But if you listen right as the commercial is about to go off, if you keep listening carefully, you'll hear something like this. Side effects may include running eyes, dry nose, and you're like, wait, what'd you say? So in some cases, people die. In other cases, people died again and got back up and then got a rash. So go, do not take this pill if you ever thought about being pregnant, ever wanted to be pregnant, ever even on a test, even wrote down the word pregnant, or if you ever even saw, knew that somebody was about to get pregnant. And you come away going, I, I, I want the cure. I do. I mean, give me the cure. I just don't want the effects. What I think is sad this morning is I think many of us think of the gospel just like that of a pharmaceutical drug commercial. Namely, what we want from the gospel is the cure. We want to be made holy. And amen, this, this is the cure of the gospel, to be justified redeemed, set apart by God himself. Amen. This is the gospel. But of the effects of the gospel, of a life of self-sacrifice, of life of bearing our crosses, a life of surrendered passions and vision, giving up comfort because of the demands of the gospel and sacrificing, being willing to give everything to see Christ made known of those effects, we oftentimes want no part. But you realize that with the gospel, you can't separate the cure from the effects. You can't separate a life of justification being declared by God. And indeed, that's, that's what the gospel is. It is a declaration that we are holy because of the righteous deeds of Christ. But a life of sanctification then are two sides of one coin. That justification births sanctification, that you can't separate the two. And the reason why you can't separate the two here in the book of Colossians is because he sees the gospel as alive. 
Now, so oftentimes when we think of the gospel, we think of this historical story that is dead in and of itself. This story of this great Messiah, and hear me, unbeliever, this story of a Christ who is the God-man, who comes down, who dies for a people who reject him. He gives his life. And one way we could sum it up is self-sacrifice and love of God and neighbor. Jesus willingly gives himself and love of his father. He dies to make us his own. Amen. That is the gospel. We oftentimes think that gospel is a dead story, just like maybe an inanimate object like a hammer. So with the hammer, you can pick up the hammer, and it's only powerful when you pick it up and begin to use it. If you don't pick up the hammer, it's an inanimate object. It just sits there, and it's dead in and of itself. Oftentimes, we think of the gospel just like that of an inanimate object. But the way that Paul talks about the gospel in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before, in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The way that Paul talks about the gospel is the gospel is the thing that is alive and we are the thing that is dead. And when the gospel comes and gets inside of us, it picks us up and uses us powerfully and mightily. The gospel is like an infectious disease. It has the ability to jump from this person to this person and infect this person and spread all over the world. I know you remember the bird flu virus, or perhaps someone has just got a stomach virus around you. If, you've, if you're walking down the street and someone, back whenever we were all afraid of the bird flu, bird flu virus, if someone coughed the first time, you might keep walking. But if they cough a second time, you're going to slide to the left, right, and let that person pass you by. Or perhaps you've been in the room of someone who's got a stomach virus. You might, you might offer to pray for them, but you're going to cover your mouth and stay on the opposite side of the room, right? Because you know that virus has the ability to jump from one person to the next and infect them. Now, some of you are thinking, man, that just, that doesn't sound very positive. It sounds like such a negative way to present the gospel. It may be negative, but it is accurate. What the gospel wants to do is to jump inside of you, to get inside you, and to kill you just like an infectious disease. But unlike an infectious disease, what the gospel does is it breaks us down, it destroys us, it crucifies us, the text says, that it may build us back up in life more abundantly in Christ Jesus. This is what our gospel has. has the power. It's alive. It's like a computer virus. Ever got a virus on your Twitter account? Ever got a virus on your Facebook account or just on your email? And it just sends out the same story over and over and over again. Sends out the same email to all your friend list. This is what the gospel wants to do with our lives. To tell one story. Self-sacrifice and love of God and neighbor. The story of Christ and what he has done with our lives. See, the problem is is that I oftentimes have my own story that I want to tell. I'm a young, aspiring pastor, and what I want, I want to tell the story of Anthony, 
Can you just just give me a moment and let me confess here as a pastor, Lord, I'll be faithful to preach your word and to preach your gospel just as long as you don't put me in a a little small church in the middle of nowhere. What the gospel wants from me is that I would be faithful to tell the gospel message, to proclaim it, not just with my mouth, but with my life, one story. So how about it? How about it? We have far too many people wanting to tell their own stories and then take the gospel and put it on there and call it gospel-centered ministry. What about it, Dad? How about you die to your notions of comfort and safety and just enough money to retire for the American dream? How about we we die to the desire to have influence and affluence? How about we die to the desire to make uh, make a name for ourselves or to be liked? Or our obsession with money. Or how about this, parents? How about we die to our lust after perfect parenting that would produce perfect, smart, clever, nice, but talented little children? What if we just, with our lives, tell one story? And that is just the message of the gospel, self-sacrifice and love of God and neighbor. And what I want you to see here is that Paul is doing this very thing. He looks at the people and the way that he looks at them is prescriptive. He looks at them and he says, there's something missing in their understanding of the gospel. There's something anemic in how they're thinking about the gospel. And what he deduces from that is what they lack, what they're missing in their understanding of the gospel. What they're missing is my sufferings. It's prescriptive. The thing that's going to help them understand the gospel is me giving my life Paul says, I'm impacted by this as a father. So oftentimes I'm thinking about my sons in a way, and this is, this is right and true on the one hand, but I'm thinking for them, man, what school do they need to go to so they can be good men? Do they need rest and relaxation? When should we take this vacation? And oftentimes I miss that perhaps the very thing that they need to really prize and understand the gospel and really become men who treasure Jesus is daddy and his sufferings. Daddy giving his life, self-sacrifice and love of God and neighbor. So Paul looks and he sees that it's prescriptive. He wants them to fully understand the gospel. But what does Paul then mean by what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Does he mean that somehow the gospel in and of itself is deficient? That there's something that's missing from the gospel in terms of power and what it does for us? Now help us all this morning, not just the really bad sinner, but all of us this morning. If there's something anemic about the gospel in terms of power and what it does. That means that we stand before the Lord. If there's something anemic about the gospel, that means we stand before the Lord, not cloaked in Christ's righteous deeds, but we stand before the Lord with all of our sin exposed before a holy God. Help us all. We are all to be be pitied. If that is the case, unbeliever, this is the state of your condition this morning. You will stand before a holy God with your sins exposed. No, not for us, believer. This, there's, what Paul is saying here is that there's nothing anemic about the gospel. 
There's nothing that is lacking in the gospel in and of itself in terms of power. What Paul is saying is in terms of presentation. You see the word here, lacking or filling up what is lacking. Paul uses elsewhere whenever he's writing to the, the believers in Philippi. There in the book of Philippians, he praises the Philippian, the Philippian believers on the one hand and says, you guys have cared well for my soul. You have sent me relief. You have sent me money. You have sent me support. So on the one hand, he praises the believers there in Philippi. He says, you have done an incredible job serving me. But then he's going to come back and he's going to use a similar phrase. He's going to say, Epaphroditus comes and he fills up what is lacking of your love for me. That is, Epaphroditus comes and in presentation, in in person, he demonstrates in presentation what the Philippians are, what is true of the Philippians, that they love the Apostle Paul. So Epaphroditus ministers on behalf of the Philippians for Paul by giving his life. Now with Christ's affliction, Paul sees himself ministering on behalf of Christ. You see, what he sees is anemic in their understanding of the gospel is suffering. It needs to be confirmed that the Lord's name is worthy to be suffered for. It's worth more than anything else. Paul's coming and he wants to confirm to them this gospel now that you have in your hands. I want to demonstrate to you with my life that it's the most precious thing that this world has to offer. That our gospel comes with a certificate of authenticity. You ever had something that's maybe a valuable signature on a basketball or maybe a painting that's worth a lot of money? You get a certificate of authenticity. And what that certificate is saying is it's witnessing to that this this painting is beautiful and it is valuable. This is our lives and what it is supposed to do with the gospel. This is in tandem with with Paul's calling in Acts chapter 9, 15 through 16, the Lord answers Ananias and says to him, he is my instrument for carrying my name to the Gentiles. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So what these people need to see here in Arkansas, what the people need to see that is prized more than anything else is the gospel that more than comfort, more than money, more than fame, more than fortune, or anything else. And the question for you all is, will you demonstrate to them that the gospel is the greatest treasure ever known? That verse 27, the riches of Christ's glory, that Christ living in us is the greatest riches ever to be had. And the way that they're going to see that are sufferings. You know, my son, Marcus, when I took him to his first baseball game, his first uh, Major League Baseball game, I got the tickets at work, so I called home, and I said to my wife, hey, I'm going to take Marcus to a professional baseball game. Marcus got really excited on the phone. I hung up the phone, and I finished work. I walked home after work, after 5 o'clock, I went home. I walked in the door, and and some of you fathers know this this look. I walked in, and my wife looked at me like, everybody's safety right now is in question. And that's when you get that look, you know what you're supposed to do, kiss her on the cheek and immediately go and try to start problem solving and figure out what's going on. And of course it was Marcus as I was walking by her. She looked at me and said, he's been so bad today, he shouldn't get to go to the game. 
I walked upstairs, went into his room, and he's sitting on the bed. He's got this, you know, these, these droopy eyes and this, this frown on his face. And I'm looking at him, and I said, hey, mom says that you've been horrible today. He looks back at me and says, yeah, I've had a tough day. So I look at him, and usually I don't have very many wise moments as a father. I'm usually calling other wise men and asking for help as to what to do. But I had one of these wise moments. I looked at him and said, I think you should be punished for what you've done. So either you get to choose, you're going to miss the game, or you're going to get 10 hard daddy swats. Marcus, who usually, if you know my son Marcus, he's a lot like me. It's, it's a lot of drama. He usually is throwing himself all around. He's screaming, kicking. You don't want to spank him in public. You've got to try to you know, corner him off somewhere so people don't think that you're you know, doing things to him that are inappropriate or something, right? Like, so usually he, he throws this huge fit, but he gets up. He pulls his pants down. He walks over to his dresser. He puts both hands on his dresser, stands there and looks back at me. I take my belt off and I give him 10 hard daddy swats. Marcus lets one huge, big Denzel tear just drop from his eye. He looks at me as he's pulling his pants up and he says, now when we get to the game, I want some popcorn and I want to. It was at that moment that I had never known before how much this dude loves baseball. And what was the thing that helped me see it? How, how was it clarified for me? What was the way that it was lifted up before my eyes that I could actually see it clearly? It was his sufferings, if you will, that I could see it most profoundly. This is going to be the case with regards to our passing and spreading of the gospel right here in Arkansas or in Texas where I'm from or all over the world. The way they will see the quality of the gospel is through our suffering. Our suffering will not only qualify what the gospel is, it will also qualify how good the gospel is and how valuable it is to us. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, now, wait a minute. You can't preach this text prescriptively, perhaps. This is Paul who's talking about his own sufferings. So how and in what way can you talk to us now about us embracing suffering as a means for the gospel going out? Well, I certainly don't want to open a package that doesn't belong to you. It's one of the worst things that happens on Christmas. So let me give you a few that apply to you. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his namesake. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 1.8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me of his, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings of the gospel by the power of our God. Romans 8, the spirit himself bears witness, our spirit, that we are children of God. And if children of God, then heirs, then heirs of God, then fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Or Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. See what we do here. I love this, this illustration. If a, if a king was to write a decree to his people of the land and he sent out word and the word was clean up the land. Then the people got his decree and they begin to memorize his decree. They begin to sing about his decree. They begin to put it on little bracelets and put it on their wrists or to put it on T-shirts. But they never actually cleaned up the land. Then when the king comes, he says of them, you've missed the point. 
I actually wanted you to clean up the land. This is the point of suffering as well. That when the Lord calls us to suffering, it's not hypothetical. He really is calling us to embrace suffering as a means for getting the gospel out. We must show the world that Jesus really is worthy. I love Jim Elliott's quote here. He is no fool to lose that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot earn. He is no fool to lose that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot earn. It is no loss. It is no loss to count everything as rubbish in this world for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. But did anybody see the pattern here? Self-sacrifice and love of God and neighbor. How oftentimes is the pattern set by Christ? You should forgive. You should forgive mightily. Why? Because Christ has greatly forgiven you. You should love. Why? You should love mightily. It's because Christ has greatly loved you. So then here is my thesis statement this morning. The main statement that I want you to understand, a mark of a true believer is willingness to suffer. A mark of a true believer is willingness to suffer. If you're not willing to suffer, at best you're disobedient. At worst, you're not a believer. Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my namesake. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of the household? If the world hates you, know this, that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, 18 through 19. It's at this point that I want to be clear to draw everybody in and say, don't leave at this point of the sermon. Because what I have to do now is to qualify what suffering is. If I'm going to make that bold of a proclamation, then I have to qualify for you what suffering is. And here in this text, it's not about type, but it's about, it's about purpose. It's not about the type of suffering. It's about the purpose of suffering. Here he talks about the word going out. That there are two adjoining phrases to fill up what is lacking and what is make fully known the word of God. That these two phrases go together. To make the word fully known is what qualifies suffering so that the world or the God or so that the word or the gospel might go out. So a person can suffer in an excruciating way and then not be called gospel suffering. So a person could go out onto the mission field and die in an excruciating way and do it for selfish reasons and that not be considered what gospel suffering is. On the other hand, a person can merely suffer in a small way, giving your life for a friend just to have, you know, time or conversation with him. But it's for the purpose of making the word fully known and it be qualified as gospel suffering. And to be clear, both the believer and the non-believer suffer. Suffering is universal, rains down on the believer and the non-believer. Both the believer and the non-believer have the option to endure or to escape suffering. It's only the believer that has the ability to embrace what suffering does in us and through us for the sake of making the word fully known to people. 
It's like a memo that goes out from a boss, and he sends it out to his 10 employees, but only five of the employees get the memo. And the point is, is that suffering, if we're thinking about it in that way, is to make sure that the memo goes out to the other five. Or let's say that one of the people actually received the memo, but they don't fully understand the memo and all of its implications. Suffering is attempting to see that the memo, that they fully understand it and all the ways that they can. So how about it? What, what the kids, what our kids need to see, what our families need to see, what our friends need to see, what the world needs is not something stronger, but something weaker. The world needs true people of the cross. The world needs true pastors of the cross. True Christians of the cross who are willing to give everything, even if, even our lives, if the Lord calls, to that, calls us to that for his namesake. And when our people see us suffering in the act of bringing them Christ, they're getting a glimpse of the love Christ had for them on the cross. So if we run from suffering, we display or we depict a Savior who runs from the cross. We need to be people of the cross right now and embrace suffering as a means to see the word made fully known in our lives. So, Mom, how about it then? Those difficulties that you have at home as you're perhaps homeschooling or the difficulties that you have with your children, now all of a sudden those afflictions and those difficulties and those sufferings are not something that should cause you to despair It's something that you should embrace as a means of making the word fully known in your children's lives. Or how about it? How about it at work? That opportunity of sharing the gospel that's now going to cost you in popularity, that's now going to cost you in terms of your, your influence there at work, it's not something to despair and to run from. It's actually something to embrace, to see the word fully made known, perhaps, in unbelievers' lives or in Christians' lives around you. You see, we glamorize making the, the word of God made fully known on the mission field, but we oftentimes miss the opportunity to make the word of God fully known in one another's life. In one sense, this is just the cost of discipleship. What I desperately need is men and women around me who are not going to get hurt by my sin and run off. That they're going to really willingly embrace that and push into my life to see the word of God and all the deep, dark crevices of my sinful heart made known and to push through. Just because some people have accepted the gospel doesn't mean that they fully understand all of the word. Will you give yourself to discipleship and seeing the word of God made fully known in one another's lives? Or will you easily abandon, forsake this gathering because of something small? I think yet again about um, Jesus and his pattern that he has set for us, that he willingly enters into death on behalf of those who he loves. I think about that as a pattern for us. And it actually reminds me of a trip that I was about to take to Amman, Jordan. So I get to the airport, and I'm not an international flyer. So whenever I get to the airport, I'm kind of, I'm not ready to get there and to see all the different, the different cultures that would be represented there. And when I got to the airport, it was a bunch of Muslims that were there at an airport. Now, you'll just forgive me for a second, but these are all of the Hollywood terrorists that are on TV 
So in my heart, I have all of this prejudice, all of this fear, all of this anxiety that is just washing all over me. And the first thought that I'm thinking is black people are not supposed to be prejudiced. I'll leave that alone, Brad. The second thought that I had was, man, what in the world is going on inside of me? I'm sitting there as Muslims are dressed in their, their traditional garb, and I am nervous. They're pulling things out of their garb, and it's like a Snickers bar, and I'm getting nervous. Like, what's, what is that? What you got? I get on the plane with all of this prejudice, with all this anxiety, with all this fear on my heart, and I fall asleep. I'm awakened by this huge commotion and people running out of their chairs and moving, literally falling on top of me. And the first thought that I thought whenever I woke up was, I know which one did it. When lo and behold, it was just a girl that was hyperventilating. She didn't have enough oxygen. Um, and so they were trying to get oxygen to her. And as I sat there, just kind of overwhelmed by my sin and my fear, I realized that I was afraid to enter into death. I didn't want to die. What Jesus does is he willingly enters in not to a hypothetical prejudice, but a real prejudice, a real hatred that he knows will ultimately send him to the cross and kill him. He willingly enters into that. And what I am proposing you for you today is that you would willingly enter into all the difficulty, all the hard relational conversations, all the difficulties of staying and uniting together to see the word of God made fully known here as a congregation across Arkansas and to the ends of the world. Would you embrace suffering as a means of doing that? And not only that, check out then the play on words here. It says, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles is the riches of this glory, this mystery, which is, in, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here it is, this mystery, but the mystery has been revealed. And the revealing of the mystery is this. It's Christ. God comes to live in his people. This is the great hope of the Old Testament. This is the great hope that God would come down and he would live with his people forever in a forever land. So Noah, there's no need to fear. Get on the ark. Why? Because I'll be with you. Abraham, this is the promise I make to you. I shall be with you, you and your descendants. You don't have to fear. Israelites, why they're in captivity. And Moses comes and he says to them, it's time to come out. God's going to free us. He's going to take us through the desert, through hard times. And yet we don't have to be afraid. Not even a Pharaoh. Why? Because God will be with us. Joshua, don't be afraid of those people. As a matter of fact, just walk around that mighty fortress and watch it fall. And the reason why you don't have to be afraid, because God will be with you. The Ark of the Covenant, that's why it's such a big deal, because it represents God with his people. So if you've heard all of that, then as the message once in one sense, the message of the Old Testament, God looking to be with his people forever and a forever place. If that's the message of the Old Testament, when we get to the New Testament and Jesus says, lo, I will be with you only for a little while. If you're reading your Bible, well, your heart should just start to to mourn and cry. What do you mean, Christ, that you're only going to be with us for a little while? I thought you, God, are supposed to come down and live with us forever. But then listen to the rest of Jesus' words when he says, I'm sending you the paraclete. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And what is he going to come and do? 
He's going to come and make known the word to you. God coming down to live with his people. You think about the profound thing. Jesus is the eternally begotten one. He takes humanity, if you will, up into the eternal throne room before the Father. He picks humanity and he subsumes it in deity. But what the Holy Spirit does is it takes deity and it comes down and it lives inside of humanity. This is the hope of the gospel, that on that great day, what God will value in me, what he will value in me is the deposit of himself, the gift of the Spirit. He will make much of himself in me on that day. So this is the hope that God would come down and live inside of us. This is what the suffering is all about as we tell our children about Christ. That God comes down to live inside of you. That he is your chosen and precious and redeemed. This is the great hope that we want to spread to the ends of the world. But not only that, then we must ask ourselves, what's the methodology for seeing the gospel or the word made fully known? And here, if you look in verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So we preach Christ so that everybody may be mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So wait a minute. We preach Christ so that we may present everybody mature in Christ with the power of Christ. Yes. That we don't begin with the gospel and then move on to something else. That we are a people of the cross. We simply stick with the gospel, the simplicity of the message that Christ has given his life for those whom he would purchase and redeem for his own possession. We make much of Christ. What these people need to see, Brad, is that they, they need to see much of Christ. Your methodology for teaching them to go to the ends of the world will be just simply exalting and lifting up Christ. Brother, in difficulties and hard times, never abandon it. Continue to lift up Christ. I was driving down, or I was uh, riding bikes with my son Marcus down the street, and it had been a while since we got to ride bikes because it, would be, it had been a hard winter in D.C. And so when we got the bike out and we were riding it, he falls on the bike, and as I go over to help him, he picks the bike up, and as he's kind of looking with great contemplation, he looks at it, he looks back at me, and he said, Dad, what is it about the bike that causes it to shrink? And what are you talking about? He said, Dad, what is it about the bike that causes the bike to shrink. And I realized, oh no, son, the bike didn't shrink. You got bigger. This is, this is what we do for one another. We continue to paint a big and beautiful picture of who Christ is, that all of the cares and all of the issues of this world would continue to just diminish before our eyes. And you see, my fear, even as a pastor, my fear is that oftentimes as a church, we figured out how to do marketing, how to do sales, how to do all the different ways to package the gospel that we really don't need Christ. But what we must give ourselves to as a people of the cross is simplistic, is the simplistic message of lifting up and exalting Christ to make him known as a means for the gospel going out. And suffering is a good way of seeing that happen. And I think about then that the end goal then is that Christ would have both the credit and the glory. And he doesn't want us to turn to some other means that we might get the credit for his gospel going forth. 
that Christ wants both the credit and the glory for our preaching and how we do life together. I'll close with this illustration. I, um, I finished preaching one day and a, a little old lady walked up to me and she walked down front and I was just shaking hands and, and just greeting the different people that had been there that day. And she walked up to me and she said um, right out of her mouth, I mean, this is just the, what happens oftentimes as a pastor or a preacher, people can say the darndest things to you. And she walked up to me and she said, I didn't listen to a word you said. So it's at that point that I'm trying to be gracious and help her out. I said, well, no, well, what were you doing? She said, I wrote a poem. So again, I'm trying to salvage everything that she's saying at this point. And so I looked at her and said, well, well, you know, I've been known to use poems in my preaching before. I, I'll use poems. You want to give me that poem? And this little old lady turned her head to the side and just looked up at me. And she said, you just make sure you give credit where credit's due. And glory to God. And in my heart, I thought you just became a part of my illustration, just not in the way that you would want. You see, with God, I think it's difficult to parse between the glory and the credit. I think God wants both. And I think he wants us to organize our lives together in a way that points to the goodness of Christ. I think he wants us to live our lives together not just in what we say about the gospel, but in how we live, how we forbear with one another, how we forgive one another, how we love one another for the purpose of the gospel being made known and famous among us. Will you give yourselves to that? Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word that it is a lamp unto our feet. Lord, I pray for this sweet, sweet congregation here in Arkansas that the world would fill the ripples of people who are committed to seeing the word made fully known in one another's lives. Lord, I pray for the difficult conversations, the difficult situations that mothers oftentimes face in their homes, that they would not be given to despair, that they would make the word fully known in their children's lives. Lord, I pray for the difficulty of marriage oftentimes. I pray that there would be strong and vibrant marriages here because one of both spouse and husband or, bo or both spouses are committed to seeing the word fully known in one another's lives. Lord, I pray for the different friendships that are represented here, the different friendships that are being rekindled. Lord, I pray for the different business relationships that are here. Lord, I pray that all of those would become avenues by which your gospel would go forth. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to embrace all the difficulties and hard things that come along with being faithful to your word and to your gospel. It's in your name that we pray, Christ. Amen.